This is Schoolhouse Equity in Education. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Schoolhouse. I am Allison Brown, Executive Director of the Communities for Just Schools Fund, and I'm thrilled to be your host. Today's episode is one that is near and dear to me as a mommy. This is a roundtable of parent organizers who are working to affect change in the schools in their communities and really ultimately the nation's schools. We have four incredible leaders on the show today. Gina Womack is the executive director of FLIC, Families and Friends of Louisiana's Incarcerated Children in New Orleans. Maisie Chen is the founder and director of Cadre in Los Angeles. Zakia Sankara Jabbar is the executive director of Racial Justice Now in Dayton, Ohio. And Marlon Tillman, who has appeared on a previous episode of Schoolhouse about counselors, not cops in schools, is the co-founder and executive director of Gwinnett Stop, the parent coalition to dismantle the school-to-prison pipeline in Georgia. Thank you all for being on Schoolhouse. Hello. Hi, everybody. This is Gina Womack. Hello. So, you know, our listeners know that we at the Communities for Just Schools Fund support grassroots organizing for systemic change in schools. And you all are very unique because you are parent organizers. So first, what is parent organizing and how does it fit within what we already know about grassroots organizing? What makes it unique? Marlene? Parent organizing is ensuring that those who are impacted are at the table and making decisions. It is bringing parents together to do what we do best, which is guide the instruction for our children, guide the environment of our children, and ensuring that they get the best possible outcomes educationally. So we bring parents together for that purpose. We push back against policies that impact school-to-prison pipeline, as well as list those that are supportive of dismantling the school-to-prison pipeline. And so we do it through policy work and and then educating our our parents and our communities and having the parents lead the fight, determine the direction that it needs to go, determine what works and what doesn't, and then having them input and talk to uh, the (laughs) educrats because we are our children's first teacher for sure. And who knows our children best but us? Who understands them best? but us. And at the end of the day, if they're not successful in life, they come back home to us. So we have a right to be there. And um, that's one of the things that I think probably the biggest thing in parent organizing is convincing parents that they have a right and a duty to be at the table. Maisie, what has been the role of parent organizing to this point? So, you know, the work around Equity in education really has been a conversation about school discipline reform, exclusionary discipline, law enforcement referrals, and racial disproportionality in all of those categories. What has been the role of parent organizing in shaping conversations and understanding about school discipline and about healthy learning environments? Well, thanks for that question, Allison. And I'm going to riff off of Marlene a bit and certainly co-sign and affirm everything that she just said about parent organizing and add a little bit of Cadre's take as well, which is for us, our parents got into this fight uh, really to address racism within the school systems, you know, the systemic racism 
that perpetuates, regardless of who the principal is, regardless of the good intentions of most policies, and quite frankly, the you know the disdain for the parents once they are involved is really what we try to confront. And the, the fact that parents are locked out is part of the reason why so many practices and policies can can sort of happen at schools under wraps without scrutiny, especially in certain communities that are completely economically and politically marginalized. And so in many ways for us, you know, in our humble opinion, parent organizing confronts also the racism towards parents that really robs most parents of their, Marvin said, their right to participate, their right to participate and receive respect when they participate and to exercise their their power. And so in order for all of these policies that you just ran through and these practices to be perpetuated and harm children, uh, there has to be, of course, the power dynamic where no one is going to hold schools accountable. Schools can sort of do what they feel they need to do without that scrutiny. And so parent organizing tips that balance. It starts to agitate that power dynamic. It starts to create fissures where schools, uh, school staff have to account for those practices. Mm -hmm. And I think we all know on the phone that many of those practices are not documented or off the books. And there's sort of a school versus parent or school versus child account. And there often is no arbiter of the truth. And so in many ways, parent organizing can really break that dynamic and really open up that lane of communication and accountability. And for, I'm sure, all of us, uh, it really helps us tackle some of the, the more challenging dynamics inside schools. Gina, your work with Flick has been historically really focused on young people who have been detained, who are in uh, jails and juvenile detention facilities. How does that connect with schools? How have you seen the importance of schools and the role of parents in talking and thinking about schools as you are centering incarcerated children in in your work? Our organization came to the work around education because beginning looking at the children who were already incarcerated and what was happening with those families whose children were already inside of the prison. We recognized really quickly after hearing from families that we were, in fact, actually living through the school-to-prison pipeline. In Mm -hmm. fact, in 2000, we didn't really realize that that was, was what it was called. However, it just made sense to really go back and look at how the school was contributing because the families continually told the stories of how their children were suspended from school. A lot of times the children got in trouble because they were suspended from school and parents were not at home during those hours. They were working. And looking at the system as a whole, we saw what was happening from the prison's perspective Mm -hmm. and how they were definitely eliminating and trying to eliminate parents from the conversation. And from the work that we were able to do in organizing the parents around the prison system and closing the country's most notorious prison, the families then started looking at how the school impacted what they were facing. And so we have been on a trajectory to end suspensions for willful disobedience 
because our state allows for children to be suspended for the subjective term of willful disobedience. So we've been working on that, and hopefully we'll see some success in the next legislative session. Zakia, you know, Maisie mentioned that the work that Cadre is doing is really about structural racism, and the same is true for racial justice now. Why is it so necessary for parents to really be able to center race in the work that they do? So for me, I'm I'm a parent who came into this work, was brought to this work through my own experience. I had to confront race at a time where I was definitely not political or anything like that. In fact, I went through a bunch of mental gymnastics to try not to confront the fact that the reason why I was going through that situation and that of my son was because of race and class to some extent at that time. So I think that it's very important to center it unapologetically, hence the name of our organization. I live in Southwest Ohio, and so this was during a time where folks were contemplating during the first presidential election of Barack Obama that we were, in fact, post-racial. And so for many of us in communities, we started to feel the pushback of conservative whites after his election in our communities. And I I now look back on the experience that I had with my son who was expelled from preschool when he was three as one of those experiences. And so I think that for us, our organizing definitely centers race unapologetically because at that time and even now, people didn't want to deal with it, Um, didn't want to deal with disproportionality of, of Black children in Ohio for black boys in particular, being expelled and suspended as early as three years old. And so we wanted to make sure that we lifted that up, that we lifted it up in a way that would bring more parents out of the shadows. Mm-hmm. It's hard for especially black women who are uh, raising our children mostly alone in the community. Um, it's very hard for us to shake that feeling of shame when there is some issues with our children in the school because we're already dealing with our own baggage of, for me at the time, being a single Black woman, you know, accessing Title 20, which is a welfare program that will pay for child care or preschool for your child. And so dealing with all of those different stereotypes that are very race racist, right? So it deals with race. And it's also gendered in some ways. So mm-hmm. one of those things is that that's how we actually started to organize other parents. I myself went and identified other Black women in the school that my son was at and asked them if they were having similar problems. And they were. And so that's how really the inception of racial justice now began. And we have continued to do that work, centering race and centering class in some ways as well. Marlene, you are a leader in the Dignity in Schools campaign. And the work that we've just heard about and what all of you are doing is very much a part of that coalition's efforts around the school-to-prison pipeline. And so when you think about, you know, a three-year-old child, Zakia's son, a three-year-old child being expelled from school, kicked out of school for the remainder of the school year, and you have to question what could a three-year-old child do to deserve being kicked out of school for the remainder of the school year. So expelled from school, we're seeing that more and more with black and brown preschool students being pushed out of schools you know, the willful disobedience piece that you all also mentioned and have described, 
really speaks to the research that we've seen that indicates that we see racial disparities in huge numbers in the more subjective categories of offense. So things like willful disobedience or insubordination or disrespect that are hard to define objectively. And those disparities really uh, shrink when we have more objective categories of offense. So possession of a weapon, possession of drugs with intention to distribute on campus, those things, the disparities don't disappear completely, but certainly are reduced considerably as compared to the more subjective categories, which speaks to implicit bias and explicit bias and structural racism in schools. So Marlene, when you talk to folks who are new to this work, new to the issues, how are you bringing them into understand the huge mountain of work to be done and also the huge successes that you all have been seeing in uh, really driving this work. All the things you spoke about, Allison, are just so true. And I have to co-sign what Zakia just said about the racial issues, the class issues Mm -hmm. that happen within the education environment in just us trying to access education for our children. And we know it happens at the higher ed level as well. We see those same structural issues going on. But we talk about it by what it is. It is about race. It is about class. It is about education status. We did a lot of advocacy work around bringing the data out and making it widespread within the community as to what it is, what it looks like. So in Georgia, for instance, and in Gwinnett, the highest number of suspensions are for a category called other. Mm-hmm. And what is other? All the subjective things. We have roughly 38 to 40 disciplinary categories that you can discipline children for that an offense should fit inside. Why do you still have an other? Mm-hmm. And why is it overwhelmingly the largest of any of them? Weapons come in under 5%. Mm-hmm. So if the conversation is really about safety, yeah. where's the safety? It's not emotionally safe for most black and brown children. Mm-hmm. It's not emotionally safe for students with disabilities. Mm-hmm. It's not a safe environment. So I think we also have to shift that narrative on safety. One of the big things in Gwinnett that we're still pushing for is a change in the fighting policy. That is one of the higher incidents for why students are arrested at school. You should not be arrested for a fight. Mm -hmm. You need to get to the root cause of why the fight happened and deal with that. And I can assure you an arrest is not doing any of that. Mm -hmm. And so we've had some movement on that in bringing out what the problem is. We've gotten the contact quota for our school resource officers eliminated. They had a contact quota for schools. So we're talking now police are inside the building doing what they do on the street, which is racially profile students. Mm -hmm. And now they have a confined environment in which to do that. When you say that to the community, they look at you wide-eyed. No, Mm. our schools don't do that. Yes, (laughs) our schools do that. They do. (laughs) Um, So... I think it's about being honest, Mm -hmm. talking about what it is. Gwinnett's not filed because we don't believe you can talk about discipline without talking about achievement. Mm -hmm. And so we filed an Office for Civil Rights complaint 
about a racially based performance contract that our county school system had with the state DOE. And of course, everyone said, no, no one would make race-based performance indicators. But Gwinnett County Schools absolutely did. Mm -hmm. So they set out in a contract that black and brown students only achieve but so much, so they should continue to achieve at that level. Mm -hmm. And the white students who are achieving at a higher rate anyway, we should further enrich them and push them more. And so when you start talking about that, you get other people on board who understand, even though they understand it for maybe different reasons, Mm -hmm. we'll say, that it's not a good thing to disenfranchise all of the black kids, we do need them for something. Um, and so we've had some of our more conservative folks in the community join in and talk about that from a holistic way of how do you do that and where does that leave our community in the end? Mm-hmm. They're watching the demographics of the community change. They understand that they can't continue to be as enriched as they are. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to say that's everybody. It's a it's an incremental change that's happening, but we just keep pushing. We push the data out. We push the anecdotal data out because those are real stories. People are impacted by that. Mm-hmm. My own son was being disciplined because the fashion police were out. And the fashion police said everything that he wore was gang related. Mm-hmm. And had I not been the parent that I was, he would have been pushed out of school and into the disciplinary alternative school. Mm-hmm. And there were other things before that that I noticed. Um, we were fortunate enough to start in a place that was a little more progressive than Georgia. And so they started looking at school to prison pipeline. And so I got an education in it when my oldest son was, was nine. And I was so disheartened by what I heard. Mm-hmm. And I was very determined from that point on Mm -hmm. that my children were not going to end up in it. And anybody who came to me was not going to be part of that as Mm -hmm. well. And so we started that organizing behind once we got to Georgia, I started noticing this was really occurring across race and class lines. Mm -hmm. And parents did not know what to do. And they do live in the shadows. As Zakia said, they feel like it's only my child. The school system reinforces it's only your child. And it's not. It is an issue that goes down to the people level and the structural systemic level. Mm -hmm. And it has to be dealt with like that. And just to clarify, Marlene, when you talk about your son being targeted for the clothes that he was wearing as gang related. I mean, these were these were T-shirts that he was making himself with. With things that you were buying for him. Yeah, so it was a red Ralph Lauren polo shirt. Gee, I didn't know he was a gang. Um, Mm -hmm. It was a self-styled T-shirt that was a straw that broke the camel's back Mm -hmm. because they were getting him for wearing North Carolina blue. It was Mm -hmm. his favorite college team. (laughs) They said that was gang-related. Let's see. Oh, my favorite one. Wearing a red shirt while having a do-rag with the strings dangling out of his back pocket. Mm. That's an actual disciplinary incident that was written up. I mean, when you start to talk about the real stories that are people, mm-hmm. they're actual people. We had a student we were helping who was disciplined for theft of school property. Sounds horrible. Mm-hmm. 
candy out of the candy dish that sat on the teacher's desk. Mm-hmm. That was theft of school property. Which really would be open to anyone to take, right? Absolutely. It's just that mm-hmm. he took it at the time that she didn't want him to. Mm-hmm. And I'll grant you, he was the PIA kid. He was ADHD. You know, he's always doing something, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. But is that the right response to the something that he's doing? I mean, children are there to learn, and we have to look at these things as teachable moments. And you can't teach with a hammer. And so now, Gina, we've seen the election of the self-proclaimed law and order candidate as president of the United States, who the campaign season, the election season has brought racial violence, the likes of which we've seen post-Reconstruction, and that is growing by day and growing in the schools. So, Gina, how has this election really changed your work or your thinking about your work, if at all? Yeah, I'm interested that you would ask this question because um, we had our uh, top the meeting the other day and our families and young people were, were talking about it. And what we were saying was like, you know, a lot of what's happening is not new for many of us. I mean, we are in Louisiana, who has the highest prison rate and one of the lowest education rates, one of the largest gaps. So, you know, for a lot of us here, it's not something that new because we've already seen how racism forces our children into the school prison pipeline. We've already seen how sexism and misogyny make it dangerous for our daughters in the prisons. And you see how the hypocrisy of our leaders, you know, who are claiming to stand for democracy and human rights while allowing the prisons to flourish and allowing kids to be pushed out of school. All of those things that Marlene was talking about. I mean, we have lots of young people, babies that we've been working with who have been suspended for, you know, stealing chapstick off a craft table, five-year-olds, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we've been working through this for a long time. And so our families continue to want to be a beacon of hope and resilience. So, we're going to continue to work to transform the systems that put our children at risk. Like we are going to continue to meet and figure out, you know, what are the best strategies. We're going to definitely, our families, we're really talking about trying to stay strong in the midst of, because of course we are, our mayor continues to say, resilient and we're also resistant to the powers that be that continue to try to keep our children and families in harm's way. And, you know, we've been able to rise up, you know, after Katrina. I mean, mm-hmm. we were definitely refugees in our own country. Mm-hmm. You know, when we came back to New Orleans, instead of having counselors in school, we had more police. We had more cops that were here. We spent over $20 million to police the schools because they knew that children were going to be coming back here traumatized. Many of the children stayed in New Orleans because they were unable to and couldn't afford to leave the city. They saw our family members, they lost family members, they saw friends drown in some of the same schools that they had to return to. Before Katrina, there were lots of schools without books. Coming home, there were, it was even worse. There were no doors on the bathrooms and, you know, children were afraid to be able to go to school. They couldn't go to the restrooms. And so, Things got harsher, but 
families and young people continue to fight. They continue to struggle through, right? Mm -hmm. And so we will definitely look at staying strong. And I know sometimes it feels like the battle is lost, but we have definitely talked about the war is far from over and that we're going to have to definitely work harder. But these are our families. These are our children. These are our schools. This is our future. And so we will definitely want to, because we, you know, we're in Louisiana. This is David Duke territory, right? Mm-hmm. And our families have always been up against a system like this in Louisiana. And we know it's going to be hard because now we have a, a lot more at stake. But what else can we do but to continue to fight? Maisie, you know, there's real fear and real anger and I think recommitted purpose right now in communities after the election. And I think all of that is connected to, number one, just the racial violence that has been on the rise since the campaign season really started. And then two, you know, a fear or concern about the rollback of existing policies and regulations and laws that have really been protective of communities of color and have been there to really ensure the provision of services and in equitable ways for communities of color. And then third, just the potential for new policies that will really kind of advance an agenda that is counter to what folks have been working on for so many years. And your work at Cadre, you've been very, very intentional about ensuring that the communities that you represent, that you work with, the parents that you work with, are really viewed as assets to community and that they are viewed as the leaders for change. So I wonder just what are the specific policies that you've heard coming out of this new administration, the specific proposals that you've heard that are really your focus right now, and how do you see the community assets helping to mobilize international attention and global attention on those policies that might be most damaging to your work? Padre is monitoring uh, our first policy victory for the last decade. And this coming March, we're going to celebrate, actually acknowledge, I should say, the 10th anniversary of Los Angeles Unified School District adopting school-wide positive behavior support and sort of marking that as one of the first time a large, large urban school district, the second largest in the country, sort of took a policy stance that was away and turned away from zero tolerance and moved in a different direction. Mm-hmm. But I will say that if this election had never happened, if it was a different outcome, I think we would still be facing a lot of the similar, the lack of fidelity in implementation that I also know all of my sisters on this podcast can relate to, and that implementation is a huge battle of political will. Mm-hmm. And, you know, cadres in California, it's very different than Dayton, than, than Georgia, than Louisiana. However, I think that the paradox of California is that as progressive, quote-unquote, as we often are in policy and in rhetoric, you know, when it comes down to implementation, we sort of are on the edge of seeing how much ideology and perception and narrative really still hamper that full implementation. So we're seeing the backlash already. We've seen backlash of all of our policies from day one, Mm -hmm. all the ways in which they're undermined, all the ways in which Black students are still being suspended or removed from school, just off the books. 
And I think that, you know, to be in a place that is deemed so progressive and then to also point out all of the contradictions in implementation and the lack of political will. And even among folks who say they believe in it conceptually, that at the end of the day, there is still a lot to confront. And so I think we're hopefully well positioned to confront this new reality as well, where while many of the things we are fighting for are being dismantled, we've also seen, you know, what the real battle often is. And and we're starting to see in LA and, and we have a lot of ways in which, you know, the school to prison pipeline has also created uh and hampered black and brown unity, you know, parents being in solidarity with one another. It creates a fissure where it really you know, pits families against each other along racial lines. And really, you know, we've done our humble best to, and and been, you know, as bold as we could possibly be at really confronting the anti-blackness that is fundamental to society and fundamental to how everyone then relates to racism and discrimination. And in many ways, our important work right now is continuing to build that solidarity and continue to develop and spend time with our parents really debunking and deconstructing and then pulling apart a lot of the things that are put out. Mm-hmm. You know, so we'll continue to do that in this new reality. We always had to do that and we're continuing to do that. Obviously Los Angeles has come out and really sort of taken a stand and saying that it's gonna protect its people, you know, be it the school district or our city. But on the ground in South Central LA, you know, there's still a lot of ways in which, you know, this new reality is probably going to create a ton of interracial conflict that then mm. really undermines, I think, the, the united front that we need to confront mm-hmm. everything we're facing. The audio tape that went viral right after the election with the teacher mm-hmm. threatening, you know, an undocumented student with saying that he could report her family and get her father deported and that he has all the information for all of them in which to do that. That happened in our district. Mm-hmm. And it was a very unfortunate thing. You know, I think that for us and in California, how this splits people along racial lines and undermines sort of the solidarity that is needed to confront this is of prime importance. And oftentimes parents are utilized for that divide and conquer strategy. And so we're going to continue doing what we're doing, Mm -hmm. as everyone else is. And we're going to continue to really look at how the school to prison pipeline, how criminalizing students, how criminalizing parents and families really creates the conditions for this rhetoric to do damage and do harm. Mm -hmm. And we're going to have to build resilience to stand up to divide and conquer. And I think in many ways, the the threat to dismantle the Office of Civil Rights, as we all know, is probably the biggest threat to all the work that we have done, both in our own organizations as well as in the Dignity in Schools campaign. Uh, We have used that office to do so much to bring awareness Mm -hmm. through data and through guidance to our schools. But With all of us monitoring over the last few years, I think we're going to have to start to turn to our states, Mm -hmm. for better or for worse. I know that's not the same prospect for every state, but I think we're going to have to continue to take the lessons learned from our monitoring and continue to push. But more importantly, you know, we're still going to knock on doors and bring parents out of the woodwork and hopefully out of the shadows and have cadre be a place where they can actually come together and study and learn how to fight this critically and systemically instead of, you know, getting picked off, basically. Zakia, the parents that you work with, what are they saying right now to their children about the elections, about life as we know it? What are the conversations that they're having right now with their children? I think that's a really interesting question. I 
had some conversations, obviously, with our group before the elections. And really, the sense that I got from the parents, you know, that we work with is that they are tapped out and they're tired. Mm -hmm. Many of the parents, if I'm honest, did not actually even vote in the presidential election. Mm -hmm. So it's like the communities that we deal with specifically are already sort of at the margins. They like, what else can y'all do to us? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they get like Trump is okay. He's there and everything, but it's almost like they've been living what everybody else is now afraid of for a while now. Mm-hmm. And the sad part of it is, and Maisie brought up, you know, one of the videos that happened in LA Unified. I'm thinking about the video that was just circulated a couple of days ago in Baltimore. Yeah. Like, that's the reality for most Black parents in our community. Like, our kids literally, that is not an anomaly. I just want people to understand well, that. Well, and just to clarify, Zakia, the, the video you're referring to is of a, a white public school teacher yes. in Baltimore who was teaching a classroom full of Black children and ended up berating them and calling them the N-word over and over and telling them what failures they are and that they are going to end up as drug dealers or shot and worse. And that's the video that you're talking about. Yeah, sorry about that. I should have provided some context, but that is a video that I'm referring to. And so, you know, for me, that's triggering. Talk Mm -hmm. about trigger warning, like, because these are the stories that I hear locally in Dayton, that I hear from parents around Ohio. We have a small group in Zanesville, which is a rural part of Ohio, right? Mm-hmm. But Black students, Black children, and Black families, you know, are faced with that kind of rhetoric. Like, teachers actually say the most dehumanizing things to our children and to the family. So mm-hmm. our parents are criminalized. They're not even welcomed in the door to begin with mm-hmm. sometimes. I mean, it's almost like they're going to, you know, a court building, you know what I mean? Like, oh, well, you have to have an appointment. I mean, it's like, what if my child is in there? Mm-hmm. So to be honest with you, I don't know that our parents are really having real deep conversations about Trump. I'm just being honest mm-hmm. because they've been living with many Trumps in Southwest Ohio for years. I'm serious. Mm -hmm. And especially, I mean, after the election of Barack Obama, many of us at the grassroots level in communities have been dealing with white people's anger to that elevation to the office. I mean, we've been dealing with that at the most local level. And so these kinds of incidents, while they're being publicized now, have been happening. You know, I just wanted to articulate that and just sort of, you know, let folks know, like, this isn't just about Trump. Like, I know that's the way that it's being framed. But for many of us, we started to feel this eight years ago. Yeah. Zakia, that, that's got to be the title of your, your book, Living with Many Trumps. <laughs> Many Trumps across the land. Thank you for, um, for that, because I, I think that that's a reality folks don't understand, that there are people for whom life will change demonstrably in the next few days, in coming years, and there are folks for whom they already have been feeling the effects of what will happen on January 21st, 2017. So thank you for articulating that. Gina, you know, we like to, on Schoolhouse, really make sure that we are 
connecting to story and to the importance of stories and narrative in ensuring that the voices of young people and marginalized people are really at the center of this work. And so what is one story that is giving you hope right now that you can share with us? Since you mentioned young people, like we have this new group of young people who have come back after they've experienced the trauma of charter school Mm -hmm. and were not like pushed out of school, but they were pushed through school. So Mm -hmm. they were used for, in their words, for the uplifting, the greatness of charter schools, and they were promised an education that then they, once they went to college, their class graduated 100% of their students and that looked really good. But on the underneath the surface, what mm-hmm. was happening was the young men really were not getting a quality education. Mm-hmm. So they are now what is being called in New Orleans opportunity youth. Young people who are not in school and they're not working. And I know this doesn't sound like an uplifting story, but I'm get to it. Mm-hmm. So when they grew up, Inflict like they were participating, they'd come to the Capitol and they would, you know, watch the work as it was happening. Mm-hmm. And then it dawned on them and they realized everything just sort of fell into place for them. So now what we have is six young black men who are taking their lives into their hand, they're using their experiences to tell the story, and they've developed a group under Flick called Black Man Rising. Mm-hmm. It's a poem that they got to recite when they graduated, and it was the one thing that they felt like they could continue to um, grow on. And although the system in this charter school failed them mm-hmm. and failed many young people, it also allowed them to take that experience and grow from it in which they're doing. So they've developed the Black Man Rising Movement, as they call it, and they are utilizing the porn, which, again, was very near and dear to them. Mm-hmm. And they are in New Orleans working with other young people to tell their story, to share their stories, and really help young people to think about taking their lives into their hands and auto Folks are, are young, and it's great because they can listen to other peers to be able to share their experiences and then see them doing something so positive after having gone through such a traumatic experience. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things that continues to lift us up mm-hmm. when you are able to see these young folks really, as they call it, are not necessarily given to the respectability politics, right? They're smart, they're amazing, and they're telling their story on their own terms. Mm -hmm. And so it's a beautiful thing. I'm really excited that we get to be a part of it. They realize that it's hard. But again, as Akia said, and as I mentioned, we've been dealing with a lot of this for a very long time. And so when their parents, also, so this is um, a little bit of a reverse situation because usually we organize parents and when parents, when the children get to see the parents fighting for their education and, and them to come home from prison, they're uplifted. But now we also have a reverse effect where we have young people fighting and parents are watching and being more hopeful. 
Mm-hmm. And so really wanting to stay into the fight and the struggle because now you have young people who are intentionally unapologetic mm-hmm. and they're out there giving hope to other young people. And it's it's definitely an uplifting experience and a wonderful thing that we get to participate and support. Thank you, Gina. And thanks to all of you for joining. Zakia, how can folks, if they want to find you and Racial Justice Now, how can they do that online? So they can reach us at www.rjnohio.org. There is a form on there where you can um, hit contact us and you can write an email. I should mention that we also have Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages for folks who are interested in contacting us via social media. And Marlene, how can people get information about Gwinnett Stop? You can reach us online as well, www.gwinnettstop, and it's stop with two Ps, dot org. We're also on Facebook and Twitter. On our website, you can do a contact us form as well, and it'll shoot us an email and we can get back with you. And Maisie, how can folks get information about Cadre? Everyone can go to www.gwinnettstop cadre-la.org. We have all those bells and whistles as well, and certainly they can email us at info at cadre-la.org. And Gina, if people want to find you and Flick, how can they do that? We can be found at Families and Friends of Louisiana's Incarcerated Children, and we're at www.flic.org. And there's a contact form there as well. And we also have a Facebook page or Twitter account at FSLICLA. You can check out our Black Man Rise and they have an Instagram account as well. They go live a lot. So they would love for you guys to check them out on Instagram. And we'd be happy to hear from folks that want to join in the fight and the struggle. Well, thank you all for providing these wonderful insights about parents and parent organizing and the importance of families and not just supporting their children, but really helping advance all of us in this fight for justice and education. Well, thanks to everyone for listening. Remember to follow me at Allison R. Brown on Twitter and sign up for the Communities for Just Schools Fund newsletter at cjsfund.org. Have a wonderful week.